Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I I don't typically love to dunk on other pastors, but I I saw this pastor fail video the other day that I, I just had to share with you. Are you ready? Okay, take a look. The trick to actually using a hammock is what? Is to simply fall back into it. You see where this is going. The trick is to trust the structure and, oh dear. (laughs) Is to trust the structure and, oh dear. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. When that first happened, people made fun of me for saying, oh dear. And my comment was, that's a win in my book because that's not what I was thinking. That is, <laughs> I'm taking that as a W. Now, <laughs> as you may have guessed, uh, it was not supposed to do that. In fact, the illustration was supposed to be, oh man, you can rest in this hammock in the same way that you rest in Jesus. And then in front of the entire church, it just collapsed beneath me. And someone came up to me afterwards and go, that was amazing. How did you make it collapse on cue like that? I was like, were you not paying attention? It was not supposed to collapse. The hammock was Jesus. And they're like, oh yeah, that's bad then. That's real, that's real bad. I show you that not just for a, a cheap laugh at my expense, but to ask this question today, have you ever had something you trusted in fail you? Have you ever put your faith, your trust in someone or something, and it did not go as you had planned? We're beginning a series today, four-week series, all about doubt. We're going to look at four different vignettes throughout the New Testament about people who had very real struggles with doubt, who maybe at one point believed, I think I could trust in this, but now I'm not so sure. Can anyone relate to that tug of war? I, I... I believed at one point, I maybe still do, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe, maybe for you it never was a belief at any point. Maybe you're here today, by the way, and you were dragged by a family member. Let me just say, I am, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you find this to be an incredibly safe place to honestly wrestle with your doubts, not to simply sweep them under the rug. Now, hopefully none of you will have to experience what I experienced in a hammock in front of your entire church. But maybe it wasn't a hammock, maybe it was something more severe than that. It's exactly in moments like this that we feel this kind of tug of war in our souls, this tug of war between faith and doubt. And so we're going to kind of go there in the next few weeks together about what do we do in that tug of war. For our purposes, here's how I'm going to define faith found right out of the pages of Scripture. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Now, in my years as a pastor, here's what I've found to be true, that on one hand, we want to have faith. My, my guess is that even if you're like completely and deeply jaded, there's something in you that's like, I, wa- I want this to be true. I want to have faith. We want to trust. We want to believe that God is present. We want to believe that he is both good and holy and trustworthy and just. But have you ever felt this tug of war that like, even though you want this, there's something else pulling you in the opposite direction? If you felt that, by the way, you're in really good company. If you felt that tug of war, even this morning, even right now, that 
you are in good company. That's a very real tension between faith and doubt. So what do we do when we are pulled in both directions? Just before we go any further, by the way, I do not believe that Christianity is a check-your-brain-at-the-door religion. They need to sort of suppress the intellect in order to have faith. The uh, Italian astronomer, physicist, and engineer named Galileo that was made famous by the band Queen said this. (laughs) I'm so glad you laughed at that, by the way. I wasn't sure (laughs) if that was going to land. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. This is not a check-your-brain-at-the-door kind of conversation. I believe that there are solid intellectual reasons for trusting the claims of Jesus. And there are a bunch of really great resources available, one that I'll actually mention a little bit later. But the truth is that this this tension, this tug-of-war, is not a new thing. This is not a 2023 thing. I I know that I've often thought things like, man, if, if I was only alive during Bible times... If only I was there, if I actually like walked with Jesus, I would never doubt. But that just isn't the case. In fact, we see multiple instances of people who saw Jesus face to face, who walked with him, that lived in this tension. The Bible is filled with stories of people who doubt. If the Bible doesn't hide these stories, maybe you don't have to hide yours either. The Bible is weirdly explicit about this tension that people often live in. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus' first followers had a lot of reason for faith. In fact, Mark actually tells a story in his gospel about three of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, James, and John, who have this incredible faith-building experience. Way in the beginning of Mark chapter 9, it says this, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said the strangely obvious thing to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. (laughs) I'm reading in the tone, but knowing what I know about Peter, doesn't that feel right? This whole thing is happening. It's clearly not about Peter. And Peter chimes in like, it's good that we're here. (laughs) It's good that we get to be a part of this. So Peter kind of says the obvious, as he often does. As this like incredible supernatural thing is unfolding right before their eyes, he blurts out, it's good for us to be here. And I say that to say this, the mountaintop can be really good. If you've gone to like a retreat or a camp or a conference and like in the middle of it, you're like, it is so good that I'm here. And you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you've been a part of a small group or something. Someone just feels like it's like soul rejuvenating. You've ever had that thought before? Or maybe you were in a dry season and something happens, something unlike you, you maybe don't identify it as a mountaintop, but you know something deep in your soul is like, yeah, I need this. It's good for me to be here. And we have a lot of a reason. I mean, just even look at the last year here at the bridge. We've had so, God has been so kind to us, just so that we're really clear. There have been more mountaintop experiences than we can count. For example, in the last year alone, we've been able to baptize 243 people. That's amazing to me. We've had over 80 kids dedicated. We've had over 1,400 first-time guests. Like, there's, there's things that God is doing that when I step back, I say, God, it is, it is good for us to be here. God, thank you for your kindness. When we're on the mountaintop celebrating all that God has done in our lives, we can feel a little like Peter and say, oh, man, this is good. I'm so glad I get to witness this. It's in these moments that God kind of feels close, doesn't he? 
where you don't, you don't feel like it's a, it's a slog to open your, your Bible or actually to spend time in prayer or to, to even feel near to him. There's lots of good, solid reasons for us to have faith. In fact, I would argue that in many ways, science points us to faith. Have you ever heard of the anthropic principle? I hadn't either. It's a notion that the universe appears as if it were specifically designed for the well-being of mankind. Scientists like Canadian astrophysicist Hugh Ross writes this. In all my conversations with those who do research on the characteristics of the universe, not one person denies the conclusion that somehow the cosmos has been crafted to make it a fit habitat for life. If an opportunity for disagreement exists, astronomers will seize it. But on this issue of that fine-tuning or careful crafting of the cosmos, the evidence is so compelling that I have yet to hear any dissent. History also points us to faith. The Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, first century writers who wrote historical accounts of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, many of whom, by the way, that we know were not Christians, writing of the legitimate claims of Jesus of Nazareth. To be really clear, this is not an apologetics class this morning. I'm not going to tie up every loose end and dot every I, but you are not dumb to consider seriously faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you feel like, I don't know, I don't want to check my brain at the door, I, I would ask you, please don't. You are not dumb for considering the claims of the resurrected Christ, but we all know there are plenty of times where reason doesn't seem to cut it when we're not on the mountaintop, right? Some of you were raised in churches. You're like, I actually don't know that I need like a rational argument, but like something deep in my gut doesn't feel right. Maybe you've spent some real time in the valley of doubt or what theologians have called the dark night of the soul. Maybe you've questioned everything. Maybe something happened in your life or is happening right now that like rattled you to your core. Or maybe you've always struggled. Maybe this has always felt like a bit of a tug of war. Often we find ourselves right here in the middle feeling this incredible tension between faith and doubt. In fact, we actually see this tension later in Mark's gospel, just a few verses following this mountaintop experience. Verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. So as, as Jesus and the disciples come down from this literal mountaintop experience, they're met with a crowd and later we'll see a man who is desperate to heal his son. Now it's, we can tell from the context and we'll see this a little bit later. The reason they were arguing was probably because of the, something the disciples did or more uh, pointedly something they couldn't do, but more on that in a second. So verse 17, we see this, uh, the father explains, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked the disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So this father had apparently believed Jesus and his disciples could do something for his son, but so far it hadn't worked yet. Anyone relate to that? He brought his son to these people that were supposed to represent Jesus. Like, you're with him, right? You should be able to accomplish this. In fact, I've heard stories that you have elsewhere, and they're unable. So Jesus responds with this lament. He says in verse 19, You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I've always thought this statement sounded a little jarring, right? Doesn't that feel a little strange? Like, what a weird response. A couple of things. After studying it a little bit more, I think it's more like I don't have that much time left for you guys to get this. I need you to understand. But something else that's worth noting, 
I don't think that Jesus is actually talking to the boy's father. I think he's talking to the disciples. We know this because Matthew tells us in a parallel account in Matthew 17, he says this, Afterward, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. So I think it's probably a fair reading that Jesus is talking not to this father who is grieving, but to the disciples. And and, and we'll talk more about that in a second as to why this rebuke is so harsh. So he brings his son to Jesus, and here's what happens next, verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, I don't want us to skip the humanity of this story, and particularly this part. Put yourself in the shoes of this father. Like, you don't even need to be a parent to know how heart-wrenching this must be. And I imagine this isn't the first time that you've seen your boy do this. Parents in the room, online, Columbia, Murray County Jail, would you not do everything you possibly could to find healing for your child? And you hear this rumor of Jesus of Nazareth that apparently is able to do miraculous things. Would you not move heaven and earth to get him to where healing might potentially be. Listen to the response of Jesus. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This is easy to miss, but this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus just as easily could have just like healed the boy and moved on, right? What does he do instead? He looks at the boy's father and he enters into his pain. He enters into his story. He asks them the kind of question that I imagine many of us would also want to be asked had we been in this father's shoes. How long have you been carrying this? How long has it been like this? How long have you been up every night crying yourself to sleep? How long have you felt this pit in your stomach? How long has your child been estranged? How long has your marriage had this weight of tension? How how long have you been here in this valley? Jesus doesn't just heal him and move on. He, he looks us in the eyes and says, how long? How long have you been here? But did you catch the little word if in there? If you didn't, Jesus does. He says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. This is what I love about this story. The father says if, right? He's not sure. I mean, up until this point, nothing has worked so far. So can you blame him? Can you blame him? For asking in this way, he's at the end of his rope and no one has been able to rescue his boy. Now often this scene is depicted as a father who doubts, but I actually think he's much closer to getting this faith thing right than most other people in the story. He's suffering. He's in pain. The religious leaders, we know from other accounts of Jesus, aren't all that help. He says, you tie up weights around people's throats, not even willing to lift a finger. His disciples, although well-meaning have also not been able to help at all. And maybe some of you can relate to that today. Maybe you're at a place where you have suffered and you have wondered where is God in your suffering and so you doubt. Maybe you were harmed at the hands of religious leaders who were supposed to represent God and abuse their power and abuse their influence. Or maybe like the disciples, well-meaning Christian people offered kind of pithy truisms that didn't actually mean anything to you in the moment and you just needed someone to sit and weep with you and to be present with you in your pain and in your sorrow. Now notice the father asks Jesus to have pity on him. That word pity comes from the Greek word splachnon. Let me hear you say splachnon. Splachnon was actually a lesser known character on Star Trek. That's a fun fact. But (laughs) splachnon is is such an interesting word because it's kind of an onomatopoeia. It literally means guts or bowels. 
right? When you look at this word, doesn't that just sort of feel like guts <laughs> or bowels? Essentially what the father is saying is not just like take like general pity on us, it's like feel it in your stomach. Feel it in your gut, Jesus. W- would you be moved on behalf of my family? It's, it's so funny to me that the word here, guts, is often associated with compassion. Think of it this way. Have you ever experienced devastating poverty or brokenness firsthand? Either yours or someone else's. Have you, have you ever been face-to-face with just pure devastation and you didn't just like know it intellectually, you like felt it in your stomach? This is some of what this father is asking for. Would you not just know my pain, Jesus? Would you feel it in your guts? Feel it in your stomach. That's compassion. This father says to Jesus, feel my pain, feel it in your stomach because I have a knot in my stomach that won't go away. I'm desperate. If you can help. Simply put, this father's not sure. He's torn. This father is at his end. But Jesus presses him on this use of if. And then look at the father's response. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Does that explain anyone else's faith journey at any point in your life? I do believe, comma, help me. Help me overcome my unbelief. The father in the story has lots of reasons for his doubt. So what does he do? He breaks away from the crowd. He brings his whole self before Jesus, doubts and all. And out of his mouth comes some of my favorite words in all the scripture. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now here's what I love about this father's response. He doesn't say, take it away. What does he say? Help me overcome it. He doesn't say, just help me kind of paint over this unbelief. He's like, help me conquer this thing. Help me overcome my unbelief. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is the means to overcome it. Do you feel that tug of war? The father believes, but he doesn't. Honestly, there have been countless times in my life, and being really blunt, sometimes sitting in rooms just like this, And I've heard sermons just like this, and I've sang songs just like we sang. And somewhere deep in my gut, I wondered, is this actually true? Am I willing to stake my whole life on this? For some people, doubt is seen as the enemy of faith, as something to hide or to be ashamed of. But I want to argue that doubt can actually be good. In fact, I think doubt can be a helpful companion to faith. Pastor and theologian Frederick Buechner put it this way. He said, doubts are ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Now, I've had ants in my pants five, maybe six times tops in my life. Real quick, just show me, what would you do if ants were in your pants right now? Real quick, wherever you're at, just a quick demonstration from the room. Go ahead. Do not ask in next service. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was excitement or terror or a mix of both. That's kind of the point, though, actually. Doubts are like the ants in the pants. You wouldn't just sit idly by like, well, guess I have ants in my pants. This is now my life. No, most of us were like, maybe not that high. But you would. <laughs> it keeps it alive. I mean, truth be told. It can be really easy for us to simply sort of coast through our faith. But what doubts can often do are kind of shake us up a bit. Kind of wake us up from our sleepy sleepwalking state. Get us thinking in new ways. Challenge us to see with a new set of eyes. I love this quote. I've used it before. Tim Keller, who was just such a thoughtful pastor and theologian and author, he writes this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. 
People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And in fact, it, this might not be full-fledged doubt, but Jesus himself struggled. We, we know that. I've used this example before. On the very night that he was handed over to be betrayed, his soul was overwhelmed, and he began to ask questions about what he was going through, and he prayed this, Abba, Father, everything is possible if you take this cup from me. Anyone ever prayed that prayer before? Like, I know this is supposed to form in me some character. I'm full up on character. Take this away from me. I've learned my lesson. I've fully arrived. Can we be done with this? Anyone ever prayed that prayer before? Take this cup. I'm done with this life lesson. Jesus himself says, if there's any other way. But his prayer continues, yet not what I will, but what you will. That, that is the prayer of the follower of Jesus. It is honest about, I would love for this cup to be taken away from me, but ultimately it's not about my will, but yours. Now, if you're telling this story in the first century where Jesus is the hero of the world, any PR person would tell you, don't include this part. Don't include any part where the hero is like sweating drops of blood, asking desperately, would you please take this cup from me, unless this is exactly what's supposed to comfort us. That even Jesus himself approaches the Father and says, are you sure about this? This is in line with the Psalms of Lament that cry out, how long, O oh Lord, will you ignore what's going on? Both in my world and the world. How long, O oh Lord? Are you unaware of what I'm seeing? Take, take this cup from me, from this person. See, Jesus was faithful even in the midst of struggle. And he sets an example for all of us. Christians are not people who never doubt. We doubt and make the decision to trust Jesus with our doubts. Just, just to hear it from me, I actually don't think God is after 100% psychological certainty in our beliefs. He wants us to trust in him like a loving child trusts a good father. Do my, do my kids always believe that I know what I'm doing? No, and rightfully so, because I don't. <laughs> How much more so a perfect loving father saying, listen, I know that you maybe don't have all the answers and you might not this, this side of eternity, but I want you to trust me like a loving child trusts a father. Now, Jesus does actually heal the boy. And here's how the story ends, verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now back in Mark chapter six, Jesus does send out the disciples two by two. Send them out two by two to not only proclaim the gospel, but to perform miracles. To perform miracles like this, by the way. So it's a perfectly reasonable question that they're now asking, like, why, why could we not? Why were we unable to drive out this spirit? Now, the Greek word for prayer that Jesus uses here is one that's made from combining two Greek words together. The first is yuka, which refers to a prayer or petition directed to God. And the preposition pros, which means toward or in the direction of. So prosueka 
speaks of an attitude of the heart that is directed in worship and dependency toward God, an attitude that has the heart inclined toward prayer. It's the opposite, by the way, of a self-reliant attitude. It's God-worship, God-oriented, God-dependent. And here's why I include this part of the story. Because I know that some of us this morning, we're thinking, man, I am, I'm scot-free in this whole doubt discussion. Which, by the way, if you're wondering why we're doing four weeks on doubt, maybe you're thinking, well, I've never doubted. I guarantee if you've never doubted, you will or you're close to someone who does. This is why we talk about it. I also know that there are plenty of us who say with our mouths, I trust Jesus, but we live with such control over finances or all of my relationships or my calendar. We may proclaim on a Sunday, God, I trust you, but if we actually take honest stock of our heart and lifestyle, I'm very much in control still. So arguably, when these disciples ask, why couldn't, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we do that? I think part of what Jesus is saying is you think that because I bestowed you power that the power was now yours to do whatever you wanted. He's revealing that their heart posture had perhaps veered away from total dependency on God and now in their own control. I've heard it said, and I think it's right, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's control. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's control. It's I need to be at the reins at all times. This is about me and my kingdom and my impact, as good as those motives even can be. And he's saying, listen, you've forgotten how to abide in the vine, to depend on me for everything. I don't know a lot about what this story means. What I do know is we can do nothing of eternal impact apart from Jesus. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we actually believe that? The disciples had perhaps gotten comfortable and confident in doing things the way they had done them, but in their own strength. We would do well to remember that we cannot do the work of Jesus apart from Jesus himself, full stop. But if you find yourself struggling in this tension the way the Father did between faith and doubt, if you find yourself saying, I do believe, help my unbelief, your doubts are not the enemy of faith. Your doubts can actually lead you to a greater depth of faith. So I want to offer just kind of four practical challenges for us today, and hopefully uh, one of these, maybe not all four, but one of them will be a a helpful kind of thing that you can hang your hat on a little bit this next week. A couple of practical challenges. Uh, Number one, express your doubts. Just own them. Like this is part of what I think being in a faithful Christian community is supposed to be all about. We get to stop pretending because it's not ultimately about how like good and right and righteous I am. If the cross is anything, it's the declaration that like I can't do it on my own. I don't have to pretend that I have more answers or that I'm more confident than I actually am. The message sometimes is sent in modern Christianity that you need to be like a total winner all the time, but scripture is filled with people who are brutally honest about where they are at. So it's not, I'm a Christ follower, so I don't talk about that. Instead, it's I'm a Christ follower, so here's where I'm honestly at. God meets us where we're at, not where we pretend to be. Some of us need to be reminded of that today. God does not meet us with the masquerade, with the, version, the online version of ourselves, with the Christian version of ourselves around churchy people. He meets us where we're actually at. It's not about, oh, I guess I don't talk about that because I'm a Christian. It's not because I'm a Christian. Here's where I'm honestly at. Because when we let doubts stew in our minds, they can overpower us. To navigate doubt, we need to express them to someone. I would say it this way. Doubt is not an enemy to faith, but unexpressed doubt can be. Doubt is not an enemy to faith, but unexpressed doubt can be. 
In the same way, if someone comes to you with doubts, listen, ask questions, seek to understand. We have to be the kinds of people who not only name our thoughts and feelings, but are a safe place for other people to do the same. See, I don't know how I feel about that particular story or that particular verse, this particular point of theology. This is what community is all about. Number two, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. This is exactly what the father in the story does. Rather than just kind of giving up, or pretending they're not there, he pushes back. He pushes back and doubts his doubts. I mentioned a resource. We have this in our resource center right now available for you. This is a a book that I quoted from earlier. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you have not read it, go buy it or get it on audiobook or Kindle or whatever because this, this is such a good starting point. If you've ever wondered, do I actually have good reason for faith in God? This has been such a helpful resource over the years for me and I know for so many others. Number three, surrender your doubts. Surrender your doubts. It's not just to express them and to doubt them. It's part of what we do with this posture. We, we, we learn by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually surrender them. We all go through periods of uncertainty in our faith, but also in our jobs, in our relationships. And during those times of uncertainty, I, I encourage people to pray this simple prayer. It's an adaptation from Pascal's Wager that simply says, Jesus, if you're real, make yourself real to me. This is not like some hocus pocus, but if you're, especially if you're someone who's like, I'm not sure how I feel about all this church, Jesus, Bible stuff. What if you prayed this for just the the next month? Jesus, I'm not even sure if you're real. If you're real, make yourself real to me and earnestly seek him. Earnestly pray this prayer and just see what God can do in your heart, through how you see the world, through your relationships. I would say it this way. I've heard it said multiple times. Ultimately, it's not the strength of our faith that matters most, but the object. Some of us think we need to have like, like real, like amazing superhero faith in order to be considered faithful Christ followers. It's kind of like a chair. If I had a chair here on the stage, like all, all I really need to have is enough faith to sit in the chair, right? That could be mustard seed faith just to go from this to this. What matters most is the strength of the chair that I'm choosing to sit in. What matters most is not the strength of my faith, but the object of it. So many of us are putting the strength of our faith in things that will eventually crumble beneath the weight. If you put your faith and expectation in anyone or anything other than God, it will eventually crumble beneath the weight. I'm sure your spouse is awesome. They're a crummy God. I'm sure your kids are awesome. They make terrible gods. I'm sure your career, I'm sure your goals, even your church and pastor are great. They're awful gods. And when we put the faith and expectation of God on anything other than God, it will crumble beneath the weight. And lastly, find gospel community. Find people that you can actually honestly do life together to wrestle with these things together. The church isn't a group of people who have it all figured out but a community of people who are learning together how to actually follow Jesus. It's not about, it's not about, well, we figured it all out, and I guess you're welcome to now join our certainty. It's about us faithfully pointing ourselves, reorienting ourselves back to the cross, back to the resurrected Jesus. That is where our faith is found, which, by the way, we have a a really great opportunity. If you've never heard of Alpha, we're launching an Alpha class next Sunday. I'd encourage you to go to bridge.tv slash alpha. The next four Sundays... At 12.30, right here in Spring Hill, lunch is provided. This is the, the perfect environment for you or for a friend that has questions or doubts that has struggled with their faith. A meal, did you hear me say a free meal? Can I get an amen? Like, this, I, listen, I'm from a family of nine. We never pass up a free meal. That's, 
This is the perfect opportunity to bring your honest questions, your honest doubts around a table to wrestle with these things that so many of us, and you, I think you'll find that you're not alone in your doubts and your questions. Cannot encourage you enough. Show up, invite our friend, and, and do the wrestling. Do what this father did. This father didn't simply wait for Jesus to come to him. He went after him. Maybe that's the word you need for today too. I'll close with this. Thinking about living in this tension between faith and doubt, uh, I thought of a, a story that I heard from a woman named Agnes. And from the time that she was very young, Agnes just like always believed. I know that's some of you, you were raised in the church, God bless you. You just sort of always believed. And not only believed, but she was passionate about like serving other people. And she wanted to do great things for God, so she left her home, became a missionary, and committed everything she had and did to God. And then she felt as if God had left her. And she, she wrote in her journal, my God, how painful is this unknown pain? Deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. How many of you, if you were a journaling type, some, some of your pages would read something similar? I mean, how many of us would want pages of our journal read in front of everybody? Agnes felt just this, this deep anguish of doubt. Now on the outside, Agnes continued to work and serve. She chose to trust Jesus and walk by faith, even though she struggled to feel it at times. And this inner darkness and pain over the absence of God continued on year after year with only one brief respite for nearly 50 years. 50 years of crying out, God, are you there? This was the secret pain of Agnes, better known to many of us as Mother Teresa. Friends, rest assured, God is not put off by your doubts. Notice Jesus doesn't say to this father, you wishy-washy follower. How dare you bring that question to me? How dare you say if in my presence? Jesus not only heals the boy, but he like takes compassion, takes pity on them. Jesus responds by entering into the story. God never gives up on his people. He sees our doubts and our wavering and our brokenness. And instead of pulling away, he draws near. So ultimately, this tug of war between faith and doubt comes down to this, who are you gonna trust? A philosopher, a professor, an ideology, a construct, the bottom line is we're all gonna trust in someone or something. What if together we decided to trust in Jesus today and every day and looked each other in the eye and reminded one another when we needed to hear it most, you're not alone, you're not alone. There is no one more worthy of our trust, Corey Ten Boom put it best. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. May we trust the engineer today and every day. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. 
We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at Bridge Church TN. Thanks again for listening.